0: I don't need to help you, Jay, don't I? I just need to let you do your job. Can we thank God for the servants up there in the balcony taking care of us? Let's just take another moment and humble ourselves before the Lord, before we look at his word. Lord, as I hear a squeaking baby, I'm reminded. Lord, that your word says... If I remember right, I know, Psalm 122, somewhere in the psalm of a sense about or me, that you have, we are to be like a, a baby weaned from its mother. And Lord, that you seek, you seek to do it exactly that, to teach us to rely on you alone, Lord. A child has no chance to survive in this world apart from the nurturing of a parent. And Father, I pray that you'd help us to walk in this room this morning like, like little children because those are the ones who inherit the kingdom of God, Jesus said. Fully reliant on you, not impressed with our own wisdom and knowledge, open to whatever you might show us. Lord, help us to not be afraid to let you show us new things. Help us, Lord, to be open. It takes vulnerability and trust to be open. You're a trustworthy God. We could trust you. Oh God, lead us into your truth, guide us. We recognize this is this is your word speaking to us. Help us, Lord, to have ears to hear what the Spirit of God is saying. Guide us, Lord, in Jesus name. Amen. I want to start off this morning by um, sharing with you uh, a reading that I've got from preachingtoday.com, which is a preaching resource. is very helpful, actually. And this is a, a little summary, one-paragraph summary of a book by a man named Craig Gross. So honestly, I haven't read the book, but I want to share the summary with you because the summary is exactly, has a lot in sync with where we're going this morning. And, and here's what, how they summarize the book. They said, a study by a couple of researchers at the University of Toronto and James Madison University proved something that we probably already have figured out which is that we tend to cut ourselves more slack than we give to others. Dave's like, I don't do that, right? <laughs> For instance, if we drive crazy through traffic, well, it's because we have an important meeting, don't you understand? And, and we don't do it that often anyways, it's, and so forth. But if someone else cuts us off driving crazy in traffic, we immediately think, what a jerk, Right? So we cut ourselves slack, and yet when the same thing is done by another person, we judge it immediately. So their conclusion is this. We all have biased blind spots, and these blind spots are largely unconscious. We don't even realize we have them, which means they remain invisible to self-analysis and resistant to intelligence can't work on something that you don't even realize is there. In other words, being smarter is not going to help you see your junk. As a matter of fact, more intelligence might add to the problem. That's their conclusion. Bias, blind spots. We all have them, right? Every single human being has blind spots. I've got blind spots. People have been trying to point them out for 55 years. (laughs) We're good at pointing out everyone else's blind spots, right? But we can't see our own. And what that leads to is this, this sense in which we're trying to correct everybody else without even really being open to correction on our own selves. And why intelligence is a problem is because the smarter you are, the more convinced you are that you're what? Right. right. <laughs> oh, whoa, 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 whoa. She's pointing at her husband. I know she's not the only one, right? And so we're convinced we're right. And so people try to point it out, but we don't even, we kind of want to see it, but we don't really believe it because we're pretty sure we're right. So blind spots are a problem in relationships. My goodness, right? They're a problem. We miss truth. We miss reality. And when it has to do with God, it's a big problem. So we're going through the Gospel of Mark right now. And the title of the series is Jesus More Than Enough. And what we've been learning in this series is exactly that. The last couple weeks, we saw Jesus in his home base, kind of where he's working out of Capernaum. And there he met two desperate people who discovered that Jesus is more than enough. A a woman bleeding for 12 years, ostracized from the community, the self-righteous community. And then you've got the, the girl who is dead, I mean, talk about, wow, blowing away blind spots. People came to conclusions that weren't right because Jesus was there, and that changed the equation. Would they believe? They believed, and as a result, God did stuff that blew away some of their thoughts about how things should work. Wow. Next passage is the exact opposite. Jesus is going to go to a place that you think would receive him, but blind spots keep them from latching on to what he has. And I just wonder how much we're missing because of our blind spots. We are in Mark chapter 6. If you're going to, we have Bibles that are underneath the chairs. You can grab one if you don't have one. And we're on page 703. Uh, Mark chapter 6, page 703, if you're using the Bible in, under the chairs. And we're picking up in verse 1, right at the top of the chapter. Mark 6, verse 1, Jesus left there, and he went to his hometown, and we know his hometown is Nazareth, right? Accompanied by his disciples. And when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? Where did this wisdom, what's this wisdom that's been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? And the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. We'll just stop there for now. So first of all, let's get acclimated geographically. So here's the map again, a different map and I've been showing you. Sea of Galilee up here, shaped like a harp, an ancient harp. And up there, the red circle at the top is most likely where Jesus had been, Capernaum in chapter 5. And it says in verse 1, right, he left there and went to his hometown. And I circled it over here for you, Nazareth, down here. There's his hometown. You can see he's going through some pretty difficult terrain to get there, very difficult terrain by foot. It's about 21 miles. This was not a simple, easy little, uh, little trip. On the way there, he went through a, li- a town you can see up there. It's called Sepphoris. I don't know if you can see it. Right above Nazareth, there's a town called Sepphoris. He would have gone right through that. That was a Roman capital of the region at the time. About four miles away from Nazareth. Now, Nazareth, as you can tell, it's right on, a, right on the edge of some hills overlooking a giant valley, the Jezreel Valley, where lots of things in the Bible occur and the Battle of Armageddon, according to Revelation, is going to happen there. So here's, here's a picture of Nazareth, uh, where you can see it's up on a hillside. This is modern-day Nazareth, about 75,000, 80,000 people. It's a significant uh, city up there. It's actually called the Arab capital of Israel, it's mostly Arabs who live here, not Jews or, or Christians, almost no Jews, uh, quite a few Christians. Here's a picture I took when I was there two years ago of the village. But, uh, it's up in the mountains, so to get there, it's sort of off the beaten path. Now, today we have things like roads and highways. Back then they didn't. You'd have to, it was difficult to get up into Nazareth, and so because of that, most uh, scholars believe it was a small village. There was probably just a few hundred people there, probably the size of Winterbury, maybe smaller. So, what does that tell you? If it's a small town, everyone knows everything about everyone, right? That's important to keep in mind. And remember Sepphoris, too. I'm gonna to come back to that in a little bit. So Jesus comes to his hometown, and it's a little bit like the local boy who's done good, right? I mean, let's you just look at the five chapters all the stuff he's been doing the miracles the teaching jesus is coming home if they had a paper it'd be front page news you know it's the war hero if you will he's coming home and so it's kind of exciting so it's no surprise in verse two when it says that when he sabbath came they invited him to come into the synagogue and to teach and when they heard him they were amazed now that amazement is a double-edged sword they're amazed positively maybe at the beginning but as you see the questions they ask, that amazement starts to shift into skepticism now before i go any further some of you may recall there's a very very famous passage that we talk about fairly frequently in the gospel of luke near the beginning of that book chapter four it says jesus went to his hometown they asked him to preach in the synagogue do you remember they gave him a scroll do you remember which scroll they gave him Scroll of Isaiah. He opened it up to the section Isaiah 61. Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to preach good news to the poor and blah, blah, blah. And he goes off and then he says today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And then later on he says by the way the Gentiles are going to receive the message but you Jews won't. And according to Luke they try to throw him off the edge of the cliff but he walks away. So scholars aren't sure, is this the same episode just told in a different way? Or is this maybe before or after Luke 4? We don't really know. I think it's the same episode. And I'll say, why later? Well, a couple reasons. One reason would be because we can see the skepticism that's building there. Mark's just going at it from a different angle than Luke is. But take a look at these questions, these skeptical questions. Where did this man get these things? What's this wisdom? And read it that way, okay? Because that's how it's meant to be read. In the Greek language, it, they're, they're using very vague words with pronouns that kind of call like a vague generic. They're not excited about this business. What's this wisdom that's been given him? Like, where did it come from? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? I mean, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? And we know his brothers. We played ball with them, Right? Aren't his sisters here with us? We know them. These questions are all skepticism. And I'd like, to, I'd like to suggest now, this is just my own thought here, okay? You can disagree. But as I read through this, I, I saw three blind spots that these questions bring up three things that are keeping them from seeing Jesus for all he is and all he's bringing to them. The first one is a theological blind spot. What's this wisdom? Where did this man get these things? In other words, he's teaching things that they haven't heard before. What do you mean it's fulfilled in our hearing? If Luke four is indeed the same incident, fulfilled in our hearing, the Gentiles are going to receive this, but not us. Uh, what? See, he's teaching stuff that doesn't fit in what their theological box. There's not a human being on earth that has perfect theology. Do you all understand that? Only God. As perfect theology. And when we're in heaven someday, I think we'll be very surprised where we were right and where we were wrong. Now, that doesn't mean theology is worthless. It's still worth pursuing. And the core of our theology doesn't change. Jesus is the Son of God, the Trinity, the Word, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Bible is the Word of God. Those things, salvation is Christ alone. The Bible is clear and clear and clear on those things. But boy, there's a whole lot of other stuff we can put in that box and, and, and die over, right? theological. They're teaching things they're not so sure about. These miracles. There haven't been miracles since the days of Elisha and Elijah hundreds of years ago. Where's this coming from? Could this be God or could it be? Right? Theological blind spots. And then look at the next one. Isn't this the carpenter? I see that as a cultural blind spot. The word there in Greek is tekton. And tekton was really someone who worked with their hands. We translate we translated carpenter, and I think we picture Jesus in a nice little woodworking you know, thing, making nice little chairs you know, with flowers on them or something. I don't know. But he's a worker with his hands. You know what he most likely is? He's, just, he's, a, he's a common construction worker kind of guy, not some really cute specialist. And that's where I want to bring Sepphoris back up. Actually, before I go there, let me show you a cultural note from one of the commentators about carpentry or about this manual labor, really, is what he is. He's a manual laborer. While manual labor was viewed as degrading by most Greeks, Jews considered working with their hands to be a noble profession. So it's not that it's a nasty profession, okay? That's not the idea. They're not saying he's nothing but a common laborer, but what they are saying is he's no better than any of us. Why do you think you're right? I mean, I grew up, you know, we we played together, and now you're telling me I gotta listen to you? More than that, that you're messiah? But you're just one of us. You're just one of us. You're just a regular guy. Culturally, it's really important in that ancient society, and even today in the East, like in India, you're supposed to stay within your social strata. You are not supposed to go beyond your social strata. That's arrogant. Why? Because who puts you in your social strata? Do you decide where you're born? Who decides where you're born? So the thinking is, if God decides where you're born, who are you to move out of that strata? That's the thinking. So Jesus, walking around like a rabbi, he's never been taught in Jerusalem. I mean, what does he think he's doing here? He's rogue. He needs to just get back into his strata where he belongs. Now, by the way, while we're talking common labor, a little sidetrack, a little bunny trail here. I'll get back. I won't be here long. But when I was in Israel, we went to Sepphoris, that town that's four miles away from Nazareth. Here's a picture of a theater that's still there in Sepphoris to this day as I said, this was the Roman capital of the time, it had actually been decimated by a Jewish revolt right before Jesus was born. And during Jesus' entire upbringing into his early adulthood, they were rebuilding Sepphoris, four miles from Nazareth. And and most scholars, we have no proof of this, okay, but most scholars believe most likely what Jesus, Joseph, and his brothers did is every day they made the one-hour walk over to Sepphoris and they worked on these buildings. Here's another shot of uh, homes that have been excavated, the basements and stuff. So I just thought it was cool to think that I pictured Jesus just doing manual labor. Labor has value, guys. If it was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for us. Your job is valuable. It's not a waste of time. Jesus didn't waste his time waiting to, be, to do something significant when he became a rabbi. Your job matters to God. It has value. Do it well to his glory. So I just think it's interesting to think about that. All right, one other blind spot with the last couple questions. Notice it's a relational blind spot. Isn't this Mary's son? The brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, his sisters. I mean, we know these people. These are are our buddies. And how can just an ordinary person do this? You can't put yourself above me. We're, we're, We're equal. But Mary's son in particular really stands out. Because again, we're talking a patriarchal society. Everything, everything in Israel is derived from the Father. And when you go through Scripture and someone is introduced, they're they're introduced as the son of Jacob, the son of Abraham. You never introduce him as the son of a mother. Introducing him in that Again, this is 2,000 years ago, okay? Patriarchal society. Introducing him by his mom is an insult. But maybe, remember what I said earlier? In that tiny little village? Do You think that just maybe, I know this is speculation, but I got to agree with the majority of commentators here. Isn't there a good chance that there have been rumors going around for 30 years about the origins of Jesus? How could an illegitimate child, possibly be used by God. Relational blind spot, theological blind spot, cultural blind spots, and they keep us from walking into the very work of God itself and to to actually be people who see and participate and receive the power of God in that moment because they take offense at him. The word there, scandalizo, means to stumble over They stumble over it. Their blind spots are too much. They can't accept this. They can't see it. And if they can't see it and understand it, they they can't go there. So what's the response from Jesus? Verse 4, Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his own relatives, and in his own home. Notice the progression. Town, relatives, home. The closer it is, the less honor. You've heard the old saying, familiarity breeds contempt. And that's where we went in the worship this morning. For those of you, if you weren't here at the very beginning, Leroy started us off by just stopping everything and saying, if Jesus walked in the room right now, how would you respond? And is it the same as your posture right now? If it isn't, maybe we've become too familiar with the doctrine of the omnipresence of God. Do we recognize that God, holy, 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 God almighty is in our midst always? A verse that I memorized a long time ago, Isaiah 3, 8, 9, it says, Israel is is stumbling, Jerusalem staggers, their words and deeds are against the Lord, listen to this, defying his glorious presence. The look on their faces testifies against them. Their words and deeds are against the Lord. And, and what, is it, what does that say? It defies his presence. In other words, when, when we don't act in a way that recognizes that holy God is in our presence, it's, a, it's an actual statement of unbelief. Do we rec- what, if our posture changes at all, then are we? have we become overly familiar with him? Do we get bored reading through the eternal word of God? Maybe we're over-familiar with the God We've got blind spots that cause us to, we think we have already know this word. We think we already understand you. We're not even open to anything new or seeing anything different or seeing more of you because we've become so familiar. We've got you figured out. Forgive us, Lord. Strip away the familiarity, Lord, in Jesus' name. So the result of this Verse 5, he could not do any miracles there. Oh yeah, except laying his hands on a few sick people and healing them. If we saw someone healed right now, just one miracle, how would we respond? And yet Jesus says, you know what? A few miracles is nothing. He says, couldn't do any miracles. Mark says, that's nothing. Yet we get excited by one healing. What does that say about our theological box here at Wintonbury? Why should we be astounded? Jesus isn't even, Mark's not impressed by a few healings. He's expecting tons of healings. That's what Jesus is coming to bring. But we satisfy ourselves with the stuff that fits in our little theological comfort blind spot. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Wow. This is the only time in the gospel of Mark where it says that Jesus is amazed. And of all the things to be amazed at, and I shudder when I think after 37 years of walking with Jesus, I have read through this Bible. If you saw my Bible at home, that's this thick, and it's got notes written from 1980s, and all this stuff in it, and all that I've read, all that I've seen, I wonder, is is he amazed at my faith or my unbelief? I hope he's not amazed at my unbelief. God, open our eyes anew. We've become too, you've become too familiar to us, Lord. It's not your fault. It's our fault. My first point this morning. The unbelieving people in Nazareth are not willing or open to be led by Jesus. It's as simple as that. Are we willing are we open to be led by Jesus, or have we already decided, Jesus, you saw our statement of faith. You can't do anything beyond that at Wintonbury? Now I'm not sitting here. Don't worry. I don't have some master plan to do some crazy things. Some of you are already running there. All right? That's not my point. My point is, does God have veto authority at Winterbury or not? Does He have veto authority in my, my constructs? I don't know if He does. Unbelief is a serious thing. It's a serious thing. I really like how one commentator described it. Take a look at this. This is helpful to me. In the Bible, unbelief is regarded as a mindset. It's a stubborn refusal to believe. See, It's a moral rebellion. It's not just a logical conclusion of evaluating evidence. It's not an objective thing. Unbelief isn't based on the evidence I don't believe. No, no. So the Nazarene's it wasn't that they evaluated the evidence. No, no, no. They had a moral problem, not an intellectual one. They were hardened in their attitudes, not open to being shown their blind spots. We have it figured out. You've got to fit within what we've figured out. We must ask, does my lack of faith prevent Jesus from working in my life, my family, and my church? Whew. Let's go back to those blind spots. I just want to show you kind of my summary of them again. Theological blind spots. We tend to dismiss what we can't explain or dismiss what doesn't fit in our grid. We get hardened in our theological positions and we're not even open to seeing any other look aspect at it. Cultural blind spots. We limit God's work by our preconception of what's okay. We decide what holy is and what holy isn't. And then we get upset when people don't fit within that. One of the things is I've gone around different churches. I've found different churches worship in different ways. And what's my tend to think? Boy, they're not really taking Jesus seriously. Oh, they take him seriously. On what basis am I making that judgment? Is it on the basis of the word of God? Or is it on the basis of what I've preconceived as culturally right in the church? And then who decides what's culturally right? How about relational blind spots? We define people by their past. And so many people, they they, they find themselves, they, they can't be, people can't see them for anything else from, from what they've done in their past or what I've done in my past. Or someone makes a mistake and the people can never forgive that person and, and that person is, is stuck in this relational blind spot where they, they no matter what they do, they can't move out of that blind spot. And we do this to people and And we we do it, it happens to us. And we miss opportunities to join God in what he's doing when we allow these blind spots to remain. God, you have veto authority in this church. And I don't pretend to be the one that has your ear either, just because of my position. You have veto authority, Lord. Speak to us, speak through us. Have your way, Lord. It's not about what we want. And what's comfortable, it's your will be done, not Mars. Heal us of our blind spots, Lord, in Jesus' name. Well, from there, but here's what's really interesting. Never again in the Gospels does it say that Jesus returns to Nazareth. How sad is that? They missed their opportunity. I don't want to miss ours. So verse 6 continues. So then he left, and he went around teaching from village to village. And he's finding that those villages, the further he gets away from Nazareth, the more he's accepted, which is interesting. But, anyways, he then, verse 7, calls the 12 to him, and he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. What's going on now? Jesus is going to send out his 12 disciples. I want to go into this section. Here's why. Because I think it's meant to be a juxtaposition, a contrast to what we just saw in Nazareth. You've got the people who are physically close to Jesus, either through birth or through upbringing. But now we're going to look at the ones, the 12 who are close to Jesus spiritually. The ones he called in chapter 3, my true family. The ones who believe. Now we're going to see believing ones. What happens when people who do believe Walk out in that faith. And that's what we see in these next 12 verses. And what Jesus is going to do is he's going to build into the faith of these 12 followers by sending them out on a faith trip. He's going to put them on an internship, if you will. All right, let's look at this internship he sends them on. He says, he called the 12 and he said, sent them out two by two. We're not meant to do ministry by ourselves. And he gives them authority over impure spirits. Authority, real authority. Not just any authority, his authority. His authority. What does that mean? That means that they are extensions of Jesus. Paul calls it being an ambassador in 2 Corinthians 5. What's an ambassador? An ambassador is a human being who is sent by a country to another country. And in that country, when that ambassador speaks, he is not speaking on his own authority, he is speaking the voice of the United States of America. That ambassador in Egypt, when he speaks, it's the voice of America that's speaking. He has an authority invested in him. That's an ambassador. And so you know where I'm going next, right? All together. I am an ambassador of the kingdom of God, clothed in his immense power. That's who we are. Do we believe that or not? And you can only tell if you believe that by do we walk in it? Are we exercising that authority? There's no need to exercise it in places where faith isn't needed, where just everyday common sense is. Am I even operating in a place where his authority, where I could see it in action? And that's what Jesus does. He's going to send them out by themselves to exercise this authority. Now, if I think we're, we're so used to this story, too, we can just blow right through it, but just take a time out. Put yourself in the shoes of the disciples. The disciples have been with Jesus. Jesus has been doing the healing. Jesus has been doing the preaching. Jesus is doing the exercising of these demons like legion with thousands of demons. You want me to go do that now? Anybody ever said to you, hey, your turn now. How do you feel about your turn now? I remember when my brother-in-law, when I was on his yacht on Lake Winnipesaukee, and I've shared this before, but... He, we were going, he's got an expensive yacht, and he's like, hey, you want to pilot it now? I'm not a motor engine car boat guy, but I was like, no, I really don't. He goes, oh, come on, it's easy. Like, oh, fine. So I get there. I mean, what can you do? Sure enough, ran into some rocks, did $5,000 worth of damage on the rudder. Needless to say, I have not piloted that yacht since, right? that's what can go wrong. That's why I don't want to try. I remember when I didn't want to drive a car when I was 16. I was afraid I'd get in an accident. Or how about the first time? Did anyone ever take you out to teach you how to share your faith like in public? I, I remember a guy who was helping me learn to follow Jesus. He took me out and we knocked on doors. And as long as he was doing the talk, I mean it was uncomfortable enough talking to total strangers about Jesus. But as long as he was doing the talking, I was all right. And then then the moment came, right? Now it's And I'm like, I really don't want to do this. I do not. I didn't think I, And right? It's not just that I didn't want to. It's that I didn't, I didn't think I could. I didn't understand that with the spirit of God in me, there's nothing that God asked me to do that I can't do because it's him doing it through me. It's not a matter of how much I have. It's a matter of connect to him and let his power flow through me. But we make ministry decisions based on can we afford it? Do we have enough people? Not do you want us to do it? And whatever it is, trust you're going to provide. This is a scary moment for the disciples. We're, what Jesus, you're coming, right? No, actually I'm taking a siesta. You guys are And they're like, "What? You're not you're not coming?" And we're only going by twos? We're not going to be a a little gang here? And then he makes it even harder. What he's doing is he's training them by giving them a training exercise. This isn't to follow for all modern missions. This is a one-time training exercise. All right, and he makes it even harder. Look at this. These are his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except the staff. Going to need that to get up and down the ravines. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals again for the ravines, but not an extra shirt. Listen, if you go on a trip for a week or two, you're not just going to get in the car and leave, right? I'm pretty sure most of us take out a little piece of paper, maybe, those of you who are organized, and write down the things and then check them off, right? The rest of us just kind of go by the seat of our pants, but we still don't go with nothing. We bring clothes, we bring water, our phones, GPS, whatever we need, right? These are basic things. Listen, you saw the terrain I showed you. They're not. They're not walking from West Hartford to... you know, to to Avon or something? I mean, well, that'd be pretty difficult, actually, wouldn't it? But you know the point I'm making? They're walking through wilderness with all sorts of wild animals, with all sorts of crazy things. You bring two tunis because it gets cold at night and you may not have a place to sleep. you got to bring bread with the distances between the towns and cities. He says, bring none of your necessities. whoa. Learn to rely on me. When I call you to do something, I will resource it. Trust me. And if any place won't welcome you, or or, I mean, I'm sorry, verse 10. Whenever you enter a house, stay there till you leave that town. So when you get there, if you find a house and they take you in, don't go looking. Oh, wait a minute. They got air conditioning over there. No, you just, whatever house takes you in, whether they're well-equipped or not, stay there. Another trusting. And then he says, and this might be the hardest of all of it, verse 11. And if any place you go to will not welcome you or listen to your message of repent, right? Leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Now listen, this makes no sense to us. It made a lot of sense to the disciples because in the first century, when a Jew went from one territory to another, when a Jew went from Gentile territory and crossed over into Jewish territory, as they got to that border, they would stop and shake the dust of the Gentile land off of them. They didn't want to bring pagan impurity into holy Israel. It's one thing to do that in the middle of a wilderness at some random border between a Gentile and Jewish land. Where is he telling them to do this shaking of the dust? In Jewish cities. To Jews. Which means, what, is he saying? what are these disciples going to be saying to these Jews as they do this? You are nothing more than pagan Gentiles. That is not a way to win friends and influence people. So not only are they going to have to be stretched physically, they're going to have to be stretched emotionally, spirit, relationally. Who knows what kind of, I'm sure they're expecting really, maybe some violent response to that. So this isn't a nice little faith trip. This is scary stuff. So what happens? Well, they go out. Verse 12, they went out. They believe that God can somehow provide. And Even though this trip is, no parent would send their child out on a trip organized like this. But in spite of that, they go. They trust the word of Christ. Instead of, you know, they, instead of their, and they, they allow and instead of their blind spots to hold them back, they go out and they, and they do what he did. They preach that people should repent. They drove out many demons. They anointed many sick people with oil and they healed them. They saw it wasn't Jesus' time. It was them. They're doing it. That blew their blind spot. I'm sure they were thinking only, only Jesus can do these things. And all of a sudden, by walking out in faith, And saying, God, I know I don't have anything. You're asking me to do this. Unless you show up, I'm going to look really stupid here. And God shows up. And their blind spots of who they are, their even understanding of who they are, is changed in this moment. Whoa, maybe we are ambassadors of the kingdom. Blind spots blown away. New realities opened up because they were willing to follow the word of the Lord instead of their instincts. So, my second point this morning is the believing disciples are willing and open to be led by Jesus. Faith lifts blind spots, but you gotta be willing to make yourself vulnerable, be willing to go out into places that aren't comfortable. And it's not, we're not going to lose our blind spots. We're not going to grow in faith by sitting in our rooms studying the scriptures. As great as that is, and there's a place for that. Sitting and praying and reading is not going to expand our faith. It's going to expand our knowledge. And yes, there is a piece that will expand our faith. But, but for faith to be faith, there has to be an actual step out. It's one thing to say, you can carry me across the ravine. But true faith gets on the back and goes. It's not really faith to just sit here and say he can do it. There has to be an active step of vulnerability for it to truly be faith. And for, the, for you to experience the power of God. The, the, the priests in Joshua 3, they had to step in the river while it was a raging torrent. you got to take the step first. And each of us needs to determine. I can't determine your step. What is our step? What's our step as a church? That's what we're trying to discern. What's our steps individually? Or are we going to content ourselves with nice Christianity? I want to see the power of God flow. And Lord, remove any blind spots that are keeping that from happening. One of my favorite preachers is a guy named A.W. Tozer about 70, 80 years ago. And he's preached on this a lot. It was one of his major points. Active steps necessary. He used to talk about miracles follow the plow. Miracles follow the plow. And here's one of his quotes. He would say, the power of God comes only where it is called out by the plow. It is released into the church only when she's doing something that demands faith. The only way to power for such a church is to come out of hiding and once more take the danger encircled path of obedience. Its security is its deadliest foe. If we keep making decisions based on what's safe, financially, physically, spiritually, whatever else. We don't need God's power. We can do that in human effort. The church that fears the plow writes its own epitaph. The church that uses the plow walks in the way of revival. That's what the meeting is about Wednesday. That's what the meeting is about Sunday. Lord, what plow do you want us to grab onto? There's there's thousands of them. (laughs) What plow do you want us to grab onto? And no matter what the cost is, no matter how much faith it's going to take to trust you to provide, we're only going to see it provide if we first put our hands to the plow. Now, I've shared this before, but I, I feel like I want to share it again. And that is when I was in college, I, uh, I had the, the privilege of going on a faith trip similar to this one. I was part of a group called the Navigators, and we had a uh, summer training program with about 100 students from around New England in Amherst, Massachusetts. And every Friday night, we would work during the week, do Bible studies at night. And then Friday night, we'd come home around 6, uh, eat dinner, and then at 7, we'd have a rally. It was really fun. I usually play guitar, even back then. And it was really fun. We had a great night and stuff. You know, it was wonderful. Well, this one Friday night, we come home, and I'm un- totally surprised we come home at 6 o'clock, and the door to our, our, where we're staying is locked, and there's a sign on it that says, go around back. And we're like, go around? What is going on? So we go around back. When we get to the back, there was a, a, a rows of picnic tables with 100 um, brown lunch bags and no instructions. And so by the, we're just waiting, and the staff isn't saying anything. Finally, when everyone got there after work, the staff said, okay, guys, We've been praying about this for uh, for months and months and months, but we're sending you out on a faith trip. So we've divided you into ten teams of ten, and we have randomly just by prayer and by just random selections, we're going to send you to ten different cities. And this dorm is closed and locked until Sunday night at six o'clock. In the next forty-eight hours, you need to take whatever's in. You need to go to the city we're telling your team to go to. All you have is this bag lunch and anything that's on you. You can't go back to your room. Now, some of us are literally in our pizza outfits from the pizza restaurant. No clothes, no change of clothes, no nothing. Go just as you are with your brown paper bag. We were like, you're joking, right? No. So we go out. We don't have enough gas. So we started siphoning gas from one car to another. And uh, and we had just enough. We had an hour drive to Southbridge, Southbridge, Massachusetts. So we go. All the teams take off. I was so hungry, man. I mean, my back lunch was done by like, you know, 20 minutes out of Amherst. There's no more food till Sunday night, right? So we get to Southbridge, and by the time we get there, it's dark. We don't know what to do. And, you know, we're driving around, but we're running out of gas. So we go, we can't run around, so we park. And then we start walking. We saw a community center that was open. They were doing a dance for the disabled. And so we go in there, and we joined in. Oh, the other rule was we couldn't tell anyone that we needed anything. And, we, and, and if anyone asked us what we were doing there, we had to say, we're here to serve Jesus. So nobody asked us, that they, we came and helped out. Nobody asked us, where are you staying? Do you need a place? Nothing. So the thing ended and we're, there we are 10 o'clock at night, no place to go, no no, nothing. So now what do we do? We go, well, let's just sleep and you know start in the morning. So we went to the, found a church. We drove in the back, like back here. And the women were in the car. The guys were on the pavement. Then the police showed up and said, what are you doing here? And we said, we're here to serve Jesus. <laughs> so they said, well, come with us then. <laughs> you wanted to, whatever you're doing, stay in our parking lot. Or we'll watch you. Okay. So we drive over to the parking lot. We slept there in the parking lot of the police department. Got up in the morning, used their bathroom, cleaned up. We said, where can we go serve Jesus? They said, well, there's a nursing home around the corner. You might want to go there. It was about a mile walk. We walked there, we sang songs, we shared Jesus with some of the people there. It was, it was nice, but nothing was coming still. And finally, one old lady said, you know, where are you guys, uh, what are you doing today? I go, well, we're serving Jesus. She said, where? We said, we don't know. She said, well, I don't know if my church is doing anything today, but it's a nice church. And she said, you know, here's the address, and maybe you could go over there. And we're like, Saturday? What well, maybe. We don't have any other leads, so we prayed, and we just felt like God said, follow what I give you, Okay. So we walk through Southbridge, and as we're walking through Southbridge, we walk by a pizza hut, and we're like, we haven't eaten, we haven't eaten since the night before, right? So we're college students, okay? And I'm like, oh my goodness. And then we walk by a Friendly's, and oh man, that looks so good. But we keep, we're like, Lord, that would be awesome. And then we keep walking, eventually we walk by these berries, and we're eating the berries, and Finally, we get to this church. It's a little like Winterbury. It was, it was in the middle of a neighborhood. It was a long walk, too. I forget how long it took, but it wasn't. We were exhausted. We get there, and it looks like it's totally shut down. We're like, you're kidding us. What are we going to do? It's mid-afternoon on Saturday. But one of the guys said, you know, let me just check around back. He runs, and he comes back. Hey, there's people. <laughs> okay. So we go around back, and there's eight people scraping the paint off the back of the church. And we said hi can we help they're like sure and so then we helped them and finally like an hour later somebody finally said who are you guys why are you here (laughs) we're like well we're we're here to serve jesus and that guy says how many are there we said 10 he said you're kidding we said no he said why he said so last night we gathered to plan out today and we and we knew we were short and just kind of a flippant thing one of the guys happened to say lord Lord, we need like 10 more people. And I just flippantly said that. And sure enough, 10 people show up the next morning. And we were like, wow, we're an answer to prayer. So then we do that. And then finally, it's getting late. We're so hungry. And then somebody show, said to us, so where are you guys staying? Finally, someone asked. Well, we don't really have any place. Really? No. Well, why don't you stay at our house? Okay. <laughs> so we go to their house. And sure enough, it was 1984, and the Olympics were on, and they wouldn't let us watch TV at the summer training program. And I had been dying to see the Olympics. Carl Lewis, for those of you who remember. And we got to watch the Olympics. It was like, that's so awesome. And they let us use their shower. And and then they brought in Pizza Hut, without us asking, and Friendly's ice cream, without us asking. Because God loves to give his children good things when they walk out in faith. And sure enough, the next day, we went to church with them. They asked us to go up front and share our testimony. We did. The church was encouraged. The people were giving us money, but we felt like we got to trust God. We put it all back in the offering plate. But then as we were going to the parking lot, someone else gave us money. It was just enough money to get gas in the tank to drive back to Amherst and get ice cream cones, because back then ice cream cones were cheap, right? And then we showed up. Now, right here, and this is it. I'll end right here. On these tapes... From 1984, are the 10 testimonies of every single team. Every single team was an answer to someone's prayer. Every team ate. Every team was housed. Not one team asked for anything. All we did was pray. This changed my life. All hundred of those students changed our lives. Because before here, we were doing everything safely. It wasn't until we allowed God to stretch us beyond our boundaries that we saw the power of God work in and through us in a powerful way. God wants his power to course through this place. May we not put a cap on it with our blind spots. Father, I pray in Jesus' name, would you help us as a church to be aware of where are we not trusting you? Where have we put limits on your veto? Where have we said to you, you can go this far but no further, Lord? Where have we said that? Eliminate them, Lord. You can be trusted. You can be trusted. So, Father, I pray you would do this both individually and in families and in our church. Use us to your great glory, Lord. We want your glory to be manifested, and that means coming out of hiding, out of into the dark and your light shining bright like Matthew 5 says. So Father, fill us with your spirit. Give us guidance and help us, Lord, to walk in whatever call you give us. We pray this to your glory and yours alone. Amen. Amen. The LeBlons would love to pray for you. If you want to maybe pray into some of these things in your life with blind spots, walk in whatever God calls you to. Amen.